Um, I am uh, struggling, still struggling with a persistent cough, and uh, it's, it comes out in bouts of coughing sometimes when I'm ta- <coughs> talking. And so I want to ask for your patience um, if I, at a critical moment, lose you guys while I cough. Um, <laughs> all right, so the, the, the preaching text comes today from page four in your bulletins, from Genesis 28. Uh, you guys will also see that there's another passage here, John 1. We're going to touch on that later, so uh, reserve your curiosity until then. Um, and I'll read to you starting from verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it <coughs> reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and, and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. The name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of God. So we are continuing our sermon series on the life of Jacob. And we come to this uh, dream that Jacob has, and it's a a truly remarkable dream. It's a mysterious dream. And the question we're going to ask is, what does the dream mean? You know, what is this dream trying to tell us? And the other question is, why now? Why at this moment in Jacob's life does God reveal himself in this way? And so we're going to answer these questions, and we're going to look at the story in three parts. And so here's my outline. Number one, we're going to look at uh, how Jacob is on the run. Number two, we're going to look at uh, what God tells Jacob in the dream. And then we're going to compare that to how Jacob responds. And then finally, we're going to look at the actual vision of this stairway. What does that mean? What is it trying to tell us? All right. So let's start. Number one, uh, Jacob on the run. And the narrator here is really uh, a really masterful artist. Because in just these first two verses... Uh, the narrator, with just a few brushstrokes, is giving us a picture of where Jacob is at in his life, at this point in his life, right? So if you look at verse 10, it says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. So this gives us a little background. If you guys remember, two weeks ago, we looked at uh, how Jacob stole the blessing from 
Esau, right, his older brother, and how he lied and deceived his father. And what happened in the aftermath is that Esau became enraged. And he began to plot how to kill his own brother. And Rebecca, the mother, got wind of it. And so she hurriedly went to Jacob and she, and she said, Jacob, your life is in danger. You need to run. I want you to go to my brother Laban who lives in Haran, 500 miles away, and you'll be safe there. You'll be, you'll be safe. And so uh, Jacob is on the run, right? And so he's left Beersheba, which is where his family lives, and he's headed towards Haran, which is where Laban, which is where safety and security is. And then in the next verse it says, uh, Jacob came to a certain place. Now, if you're familiar with biblical narratives, this should strike you as a little odd because all the time in Bible stories, uh, the narrator is always careful to give the name of the location, right? But not here. Why? Because where Jacob is at has no name, right? It's, there's, it's not anywhere significant. It's basically the narrator's telling us that Jacob is in the middle of nowhere, right? He's nobody nowhere, okay? Um, and then the second thing it tells us is that Jacob used the stone for a pillow. And what that tells us is that Jacob had nothing, right? Because if you have anything at all, right, if you have a coat, if you have a knapsack, you would ball that up and you would use that as a pillow. Who would use something as hard and as, un- and as uncomfortable as a stone for a pillow unless you have nothing, right? And so by telling us this little detail, the narrator is telling us that Jacob was penniless, that he had fled home with absolutely nothing. And then finally, the narrator tells us that the sun had set. Now here's the thing, in the Middle East, this was a culture of hospitality. And whenever you're traveling, you're supposed to stay the night with relatives or friends. And so for Jacob, you know, he should have been with somebody, but the sun had set. He's in the middle of nowhere, and so he has nobody to stay with. And so this is a kind of pathetic picture, right? It's the narrator's telling us this darkness, this loneliness, this, this foreboding sense. And this is where Jacob is at. And at this point, at the lowest moment in Jacob's life, is when God appears. And God gives Jacob this incredible revelation, right? One of the greatest revelations in all of the Bible. And the question is for us, you know, what can we learn? Let's pause for a moment and let's apply this to our lives. What does this tell us? You see, Jacob is at the lowest moment in his life, right? Everything had fallen apart. His father hates him. His brother wants to kill him. The only person who ever loved him in his life, his mother, he will never see again, right? Everything, you know, Jacob has made a mess of his life. He has no family, no friends, no possessions. Jacob has had absolute rock bottom. And we are so afraid, are we not, of experiencing what Jacob experienced here, right? We will do anything to avoid that kind of total and absolute failure and defeat and rejection. But what does the Bible tell us? It tells us that at the moment of Jacob's greatest weakness, of his emptiness, when he had nothing, when he had exhausted all of his resources, that is when God shows up and God embraces Jacob. And Jacob experiences the love of God in a way that he never had before. Why? This is one of the deepest truths of Scripture. That only when you are weak can you experience the strength of God. 
Only when you are poor can you experience the, the wealth of God. Only when you are alone and rejected can you experience the nearness and the intimacy of God. Because the Bible tells us God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's an amazing statement. That's an amazing verse. What does that mean? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What that means is that when everything is going well in your life and all the pieces are falling into place and you're just going from victory to victory, strength to strength, you become proud and you don't need God in your life, right? Why? Because you're doing okay all by yourself. You're doing fine on your own. But when you've been brought low, right, when you despair of life itself, right, you have no illusion that you are making it on your own, right? You have no illusion that you're self-sufficient and then you experience God's grace and then you experience God's nearness. And what am I trying to say here? What's the point? Am I trying to tell you that you should sell everything that you have and to become a beggar on the street? No. Um, Some of you are sighing in relief. Um, No, I want to be very careful. What I am saying, and listen very carefully, is that when you experience seasons of of failure. And some of you are saying um, it's actually year round. <laughs> right? When you experience uh, seasons of failure, let that draw you close to God. Okay? Because Christianity fundamentally redefines the meaning of failure. Because the world says if you fail, you're a nobody. If you fail, you're cut off. But the Bible tells us if you fail, that is the entryway. That is the gateway to heaven itself. And when you believe that, when you understand that, when, when it penetrates your heart, then you will be able to understand when Paul says in Philippians something that's just so stupendous, so amazing, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Isn't that amazing? Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. You'll be able to understand when Paul says, I am content whether in plenty or in want doesn't matter, right? So that you'll be able to understand when Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It doesn't matter. Either way, glory be to God, right? Either way, you depend on Christ. So that's the first point. Um, God came to Jacob at the lowest moment in his life. The second thing we see here is uh, this dream, and God speaks to Jacob. What does God say? Let's look to verses 13 and 14. I'll I'll read it again for you. Uh, God says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed. So let's stop right there. This should be pretty familiar to us, right? This is the blessings. This is the promises that God has given to Abraham and to Isaac and now to Jacob. And what God is saying to Jacob is, I am going to use you, and I'm going to bless you, and through you and your family, I'm going, to bless, I'm going to save the entire world, right? But notice that God doesn't stop there. God goes on, and I want you to notice that what God says perfectly matches what Jacob needs to hear, right? It perfectly meets Jacob's needs. Look, look in verse 15. God says, I am with you. You see, Jacob has nobody. He's without a friend in the world. But God says, I will be with you. I will be your God. You will never be alone. And then the second thing God says is, I will keep you. 
And that word keep means to guard, it means to watch over. And Jacob is wandering in a strange land, full of dangers, full of enemies. And God says, I will protect you. I will be a shield around you. And then the, 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 the third thing God says is, I will bring you home. You see, Jacob is homesick. And I want you to think for a moment, what does home mean? Think back to your earliest memories when you were a little kid. And you were at home. What does home mean? Home is a place of sanctuary. Home is a place of comfort. It's a place of of peace, of joy. And so God says, I will bring you to that place. I will bring you home. I will be your home. And then finally, at the end of verse 15, God says, I will not leave you. This is God's um, guarantee that he will fulfill all the promises. This is God's rock-solid guarantee, rock-solid promise. Now, You know, what does this tell us? You know what's so remarkable about this? Not a word of rebuke. Not a word of criticism. Remember what Jacob has just done. Jacob has, you know, stolen the blessing from his brother. He's lied to his father, right? But God doesn't mention any of that. God just simply says, I will bless you and I will use you. And what does that tell us? It tells us this, that God's grace is unconditional. That Jacob has done nothing to deserve the blessing. Right? That God's grace is completely free, completely unconditional. And I think this is all the more stark when we compare this to what Jacob says in response. And I want you guys to look in verse 20. And I want you to notice uh, the if-then language that Jacob says. In verse 20, then Jacob made a vow saying, if, right, if, God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Right? Jacob says, God, if you provide for me, if you protect me, then I will love you and then I will serve you. And you know, a lot of people who read this uh, come down really hard on Jacob, right? They say, well, this is Jacob the schemer. This shows that Jacob has no faith in God. And I think that's a little bit too harsh of an assessment because if you look at the whole story, uh, when Jacob wakes up from the dream, clearly he's moved, right? He says, you know, this, how awesome is this place, right? And then he says in verse 16, surely the Lord is in this place. And this is the very first time that Jacob calls upon the covenant name of God, right? Because those of you know, right, that every time you see the word LORD in all caps, this is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. So, so Jacob is worshiping God. And we also know this because Jacob takes the stone, right, and he pours oil on it. And this is a sign of reverence. This is a sign of, wow, this, this, this is holy ground, you know, that, that Jacob is worshiping God. And so I think Jacob has genuine faith but it's a weak and incomplete faith, right? Jacob doesn't quite trust God, right? God has given himself entirely, unconditionally to Jacob, but Jacob places conditions on God. But you know what's so amazing? I want us to think, you know, just before we look down too much on Jacob, let's ask this question. Are we any different? Or do we, just like Jacob, have this kind of transactional bargaining relationship with God. I want to share a, a, a personal story. Um, I've shared this story actually before, uh, but, you know, I think it's fitting. I remember when I was in the fifth grade, um, 
And uh, I had this math teacher who had a very interesting way to motivate us. And the way she would motivate us is she would seat us according to how we did on the last math test, right? So that your rank in, this, in the class was, was completely obvious to everyone in the, in the class, right? So you knew exactly where you stood, right? You knew who were, who were smart and who was not too bright. And um, this made us all relatively neurotic, uh, especially it made me particularly hyper-concerned about doing well. And I remember this one particular night. Um, the next morning was the exam, and I hadn't studied. I was completely unprepared, and I was kind of panicked. And then I remembered um, that I learned in Sunday school the story of Hannah. Do you guys know the story of Hannah? Hannah was this woman in the Old Testament, and uh, she was barren. And one day she went to the tabernacle, and she prayed to God, and she said, she made this vow. She says, God, if you give me a son, I promise that I will dedicate him in your service. And what happened next? Hannah became pregnant. She named her little boy Samuel. And true to her word, when he came of age, she fulfilled her pledge and she took him to the tabernacle. And he became, you know, the prophet Samuel. He became a, a famous priest. And so I remember that story. And so I got down on my knees and I said, Oh Lord, give me an A on tomorrow's exam. And if you do... I promise you that I will dedicate my first child in your service. And, um, and I remember, and, and you know what happened next? A miracle. I got an A. Not only that, I got the highest grade in class that day. This is the first time I got to sit in the number one position, right? It was marvelous. It was fantastic. I enjoyed it immensely for the next several weeks until it happened again. The next day was a test. I hadn't studied. I was not prepared. So I got down on my knees and I said, Oh Lord, if you give me an A on tomorrow's exam, I promise you the life of my second child. (laughs) Now we all do this, do we not, to some degree? You know, you guys may not do it as crassly as I did, but we all do this. We all have this kind of bargaining relationship with God. And we say to ourselves, if we obey, or if we just abstain from some kind of bad sin, or if we do some kind of religious duty, then God, you will bless me, and then you will um, look kindly upon me, right? And this is the way Jacob was thinking. And you know the reason why? It's because grace had not penetrated deep into Jacob's life. And what does this tell us? This is an enormous encouragement to us. This tells us that transformation does not happen overnight. It tells us that our faith, our belief in God will always be incomplete. It will always be inadequate, full of our doubts, full of fears, full of our selfish desires. But that doesn't change God's grace. Do you guys notice that at the end of the story, God doesn't show up and say, Aha, Jacob, I knew you were going to say that. You weasel. I take it all back. Right? If you're going to treat me like that, then me too. I take it all back. God doesn't say that. God continues to bless Jacob. God continues to love Jacob, despite Jacob's weak faith. And what does that tell us? It tells us that it doesn't, it's not the strength or the quality of your faith that matters. It's the one in whom you believe, right? This is very important because the world tells us the complete opposite. The world says, 
It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter who you believe, as long as you believe in it with all your might. But the Bible says it doesn't matter how strongly you believe. It doesn't matter how mightily you believe. All that matters is who you believe, right? The direction of your faith. And the second thing this story shows us is that faith is a journey. Because here we are at the beginning of Jacob's life, and Jacob's faith is weak, it's incomplete. But later on, and we're going to eventually get there, at the end of Jacob's life, he undergoes a remarkable transformation. And Jacob has a a much better, a much greater faith in God, right? So this is an encouragement to us. Because when we look at ourselves, and when we examine our hearts, are we not discouraged, right? We, We get down on ourselves. But this story tells us to persevere, So that what Paul says in Philippians is true, that he, speaking of God, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. What an encouragement to us. All right, so that's point number two, um, that uh, God's words speak of unconditional grace, even in the face of Jacob's incomplete and weak faith. Um, The third point, and we're going to take a look at this uh, incredible vision of the stairway, now, the key to understanding this dream is to, is to look at Jacob's response. And I want you guys to look at Jacob's response in verse 17. Jacob says, how awesome is this place? This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Jacob is completely floored. He's, he's, it's a paradigm-busting, amazing thing that Jacob has just seen. And here's the problem, right? Because we're coming at the story as modern readers, right? And it doesn't quite have the impact, right, with us, because we're like, okay, right? And we're not amazed. And the reason why we're not amazed is because we don't understand the original cultural setting. So we're going to do a little bit of detective work. It's going to be a little bit of work, but it's going to pay off, okay? So the first thing we need to see is that what Jacob saw was not a ladder, I know that's what it says in verse 12. <laughs> Excuse me. I know that's what it says in verse 12. Um, but here's the thing. The word there, the original Hebrew word is sulam. And this is the only place it occurs in the entire Bible. And what that means is it's a little bit tricky. It's a little bit difficult to, to accurately translate it. And there's actually a, very, a big difference in opinions Um, And if you look at most of the commentaries, most of the Hebrew scholars that look at this text, you know, and I'm trusting them, they say that it shouldn't be translated ladder, but it should be translated a stairway, okay? And so what Jacob saw was this great, grand stone stairway leading up all the way to heaven. And I think that's that's a good way to interpret it because it says angels were ascending and descending. And what Jacob probably saw was thousands and thousands upon angels, and it's a little bit hard to imagine all these angels you know, climbing up this thin little ladder. I think it's so much more fitting that it is this great, grand stone stairway. And some of you are saying, well, you know, what does it matter? What's the difference? Here's where it connects, okay? Because what Jacob saw was a ziggurat. Okay? And some of you are saying, well, what's a ziggurat? A ziggurat was a very common building in the ancient world. Every city had a ziggurat at the center. And the ziggurat was a kind of um, pyramid, a step pyramid. And at the, on, the side of one of the ziggurat, on the side of the ziggurat would be this great stone stairway that leads up to the top. And the, and the ziggurat is a temple. And so the worshippers would climb up the stairs, and at the top they would encounter God and they would meet God. And the most famous ziggurat of all 
is in Genesis 11. The story of the Tower of Babel. In fact, in Genesis 28, the narrator is dropping us all these little clues and all these little hints because he's drawing our minds back to a story he's already told us. In Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. And do you guys remember what that story was about? The people were building this ziggurat because they were trying to climb up to heaven. In fact, that's what Babel means, right? Uh, uh, Babel means gate of heaven. Bab means door or gate. El means God or heaven. So this was a gate to heaven. This was like a portal up into God, right? And this is why uh, in the dream, Jacob sees a ziggurat. And this is why Jacob says, so this is the gate of heaven. But that's not, you know, that's amazing, right? The fact that Jacob saw a ziggurat. But that's not what truly floors him. What truly amazes him is in verse 13. It says, the Lord stood above it. Now, this is very, very important. Where was God standing? It's a little bit vague in the translation. And the reason why is because the Hebrew pronoun there can refer to one of two things. It could either refer to the ziggurat, in which case God is at the top of the ziggurat, right? Down from heaven, looking down. Or it can refer, the pronoun can refer to Jacob, in which God is standing over a sleeping Jacob. And actually, um, again, most commentators, most Hebrew scholars agree that God is standing over Jacob. And I think a good reason for this is because in verse 16, Jacob says, surely the Lord is in this place. Right? Jacob is amazed because God is standing, God stood on this ground, this holy ground. And what does that tell us? It tells us that God was not at the top of the ziggurat, but that God had come down the ziggurat and he was at the bottom and he was with Jacob. Now, why is that so amazing? Right? And here... And here is where it comes home, okay? How does a ziggurat work? You see, when, if you were an ancient person and you were a worshiper and you would go to the ziggurat and you had this huge stone stairway and you would have to make the arduous climb up, right? You're sweating and all that exertion, all of that effort represented your worthiness to approach God. All of that effort represented your acceptability before God. And I think, okay, a great, and this is the way people thought, okay? A great example of this is a movie uh, by Quentin Tarantino called Kill Bill Volume 2. Um, <laughs> if you guys are familiar with the movie, um, you know that it's, a, it's the story of uh, this, uh, this character named Beatrix, played by Uma Thurman, and she is this, like, uber martial arts warrior, right? And a big part of the movie goes into the backstory of how she acquired her fighting abilities, right? And in one scene, she goes to China, and the scene begins with um, Beatrix at the bottom of this enormous stone stairway leading up into the jungle. And so she gets all her luggage, she's huffing and puffing, and she climbs, and she gets to the top, and who is waiting for her? None other than the legendary Kung Fu master, Pai Mei, right? And Pai Mei, he looks very impressive, right? He's this wizened, ancient Kung Fu master with his really long beard. And um, Beatrix goes up before him and she says, "Um, I want to be your disciple. I want to learn Kung Fu from you. And Pai Mei says, well, you know, what do you know? You know, show me what you can do. And, you know, Beatrix says, you know, I'm an expert in, you know, you know I don't remember, like, tiger crane kung fu. And I'm, you know, I'm superb with the samurai sword. And Pai Mei says, 
Shombi, right? And so there's this great battle scene, this kung fu battle where uh, Uma Thurman and, you know, this ancient Chinese guy, they're like fighting each other. And of course, Pai Mei whoops uh, Beatrix, uh, but he's impressed. He says, ah, you know, you know something. You can be my disciple, but you have to train hard and you have to learn hard, okay? And this is exactly, I think this is a great metaphor. This is exactly how the world looks at God. Okay? This is how the ziggurat works. Some of you are saying, well, how primitive, right? Oh, we climb upstairs. But don't you see, the stairs represents your effort. And we all do this, right? Some of us don't even consciously think of God, but we're, but we're climbing and we're striving, right? That's why we're workaholics. That's why we're, we're working so hard, because we're climbing the steps. Some of us spend hours in front of the mirror trying to look good. Why? Because we're climbing the steps. Some of us study so hard, or some of us are out on the field practicing our athletic ability. Why? Because we're climbing the steps. Because we're trying to become worthy to approach God. But what happens in Jacob's dream? Does God call out to Jacob, Hey, Jacob, climb up the stairs. Come up and meet me. No. God goes down the stairs, down the ziggurat, to meet Jacob. And you know what's so amazing about all this? Is that we don't even see Jacob praying. At the beginning of the story, it's not even like Jacob is crying out to God. Jacob is like, he just goes to sleep. And Jacob meets him. And this is why Jacob is so astonished. And this is why he says, so this is the gate of heaven. This is how it works. And here's the question. Here's the deep mystery. How is that possible? Doesn't this violate our sense of justice, right? Because Jacob is a scoundrel. He's a thief. He's a liar. And even Jacob knows it. Jacob wakes up and he's he's afraid. He's scared. Why? Because how can a holy God accept a sinner like him? And years later, Jesus Christ would explain the mystery to us in the New Testament. And let's turn now to John chapter 1. And I'll read to you starting from verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You see, Jesus is telling us He's pointing back to Genesis 28. Because what Jesus says makes no sense at all unless we understand he's talking about Jacob's dream. You see, Nathaniel at the beginning is skeptical, right? And then Jesus meets him and Jesus says, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile, in whom there is no deceit. Meaning, Jacob, uh, uh, Nathaniel, I can see you're a plain-spoken guy. You know, you're not sly, you're not tricky. You're transparent, you say what you mean. And Nathaniel says, How do you know me? And Jesus responds by saying, Know you. I saw you under the fig tree. 
And at that moment, Nathaniel's eyes get enormous, right? And Nathaniel's like, how do you know about the fig tree? And he's so blown away, all his doubts disappear. And then he says to Jesus, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And you know what the funny thing is? We're never told what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree, Right? We don't know who he was with. We don't know what he was doing. We don't know what he was thinking. But whatever it was, was so private and so meaningful that when Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree, all of Nathaniel's doubts disappear. And he worships, he acknowledges who Jesus is. And then how does Jesus respond? Jesus says, you will see greater things than these. In verse 51, he says, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You see, what Jesus is telling us is that he is the stairway between heaven and earth. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, you will see angels ascending and descending to the Son of Man, but angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And what that means is that Jesus is the stairway. He is the true link between heaven and earth. Because you see, The way the world looks at the stairway is the stairway represents our efforts to climb. And we have to try. We have to become worthy to meet God. But Jesus is the stairway, meaning Jesus lived the life we should have lived. And then he died to death. We should have died. And because of that, we don't have to climb. Because of that, God comes down the stairway to us. And this is why one of the names of Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And that is the gospel. The gospel is not that we strenuously make the effort to climb, but the gospel is that Jesus fulfilled it all for us, that he obeyed the law, he lived a perfect life, he is the stairway, and we trust in that, and we rest in that. And to the extent that you believe this, to the extent that the gospel penetrates into your heart, you will finally stop bargaining with God. You will finally stop trying to transact and trade up with God Because God has done it all for us, right? Jesus has completed everything for us. And you will finally be able to understand what Jesus says in John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we're so grateful that Jesus Christ is the stairway. But, O oh Lord, so much of our heart and so much of our habits still propel us to climb the stairway as if we can make ourselves worthy. O oh Lord, I pray that the gospel would so transform our hearts that we would completely rest in what you have done for us. O oh Lord, I pray that you would make us a people that believes in Jesus as the way, as the stairway. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.